morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Glad you're here today. Um, our key scripture today comes from uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. So if you don't want to open your Bibles up there, I invite you to do that now. 1 Peter, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So uh, as those of you who have been here with us for the past several weeks know, we are uh, starting an elder selection process here where we have the opportunity as a church to install some new leaders, to appoint some people to help lead us into the future of what God has for us. But it occurred to me uh, that I might need to dispel you of an illusion that you have here this morning. And so I'm really sorry to do this to you, but I, ha I have to tell you, the role of an elder in a church is not as glamorous as you think it is. It's not. I, I know what you're thinking, but Bryce, they can come to church and drink grape juice out of those little cups whenever they want. I know. I know. They could come and, and do all these wonderful... But I have to tell you, the role of being elder is not really all that glamorous. Now, my dad has been an elder for more than 30 years at the church that I grew up in in Fresno. And uh, he became an elder when I was, I think, 12. Uh, somewhere in that range has to have been if it's been more than 30 years um, and in those 30 years, my dad has experienced a great number of things. Um, he's been part of firing a minister who had an affair with another member's wife. Uh, he was part of restoring that man and that woman and eventually marrying them and bringing them back into the church. He was part of, um, he had to stand by a good friend who was accused of doing something really terrible, and he also had to let that friend go for the sake of the church and the health of the congregation. Uh, he stood up in church next to his good friend when his good friend confessed adultery, and my dad stood up in church and asked for prayers for his children when his children, including me, had lost their way. He's seen that church at its absolute peak when there was a thousand people there every week. And he's seen that church when there's been hardly enough people to fill the first several rows. And the reason why I bring all of this up to you this morning about my dad and his experience as we talk about leaders here for our church is that there are so many highs and lows within a church family. And there is no... There is no group that has to deal with the ups and downs of church life as much as your elders do. I mean, I want you to know I am crucially important to you. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I am vital. But even so, ministers come and go. 
But the eldership of a church, they are the people that most often stay, that live through the entire life cycle of a group of people that see you sometimes from spiritual birth all the way into spiritual maturity. And that takes me to one key idea from this passage, which is so important to us to recognize this morning. An elder becomes an elder not because it's a get-rich scheme, not because there is so much power involved, not because there is so much influence involved, but most importantly, not because he has to. An elder becomes an elder of a church because he is willing to serve God and God is calling him to be a part of what he is doing in that family. And that is part of what we are doing right now is we are looking around, we are seeing who we believe God is calling into this role of leading us forward. And we have been blessed in this church, in my years of experience here, we have been blessed with men in leadership here who have wanted to serve God with all of their hearts, who have led this church through all different kinds of seasons. And this morning, and this, as you now have the opportunity starting today to begin to nominate people over the next two weeks who you believe will serve in this role, we want to pray that God will bless us with those who are listening to God in their own lives, who are being led by God, who's, who love God with all their hearts, and who want to be a part of where God is taking us moving forward. Amen? It's hard to talk about eldership selection being exciting. But it is. Because it's an acknowledgement of the blessing that God has already given us, the people that he has already brought into our lives, and it's a looking forward to where God is going to take us through the blessing of others. So this morning, as we think about leadership, as we think about our own leaders, as you think about the people in your life that have helped to form you, that have helped you to grow in your relationship with God, let's be thankful to God that he has placed these men and women in our lives who have helped us be who God wants us to be. Uh, so there's a couple things that I wanted to mention as, as we get started here today. The first one is um, we are going to we're, we're going to be using a new program to help us uh, keep track of like who's here and who's doing what. And so I entered all the information from the bulletin this week into something called the Planning Center. And then I think almost everybody got an email from the Planning Center, which I didn't know that was going to happen. And so the first email came in at like midnight on uh, whatever day it was that I had on Tuesday or something saying, uh, excuse me, Bryce, what is the planning center? And uh, so I promise uh, we're not tracking you any more than we ever have. Uh, any noises you hear in the bushes, you know, or people you think are following you on the road, that's not us. Uh, we are simply entering the information you already gave us into something that is going to help us uh, keep track of attendance and all those sorts of things. So that's what that is. There is nothing you need to do. I've had some people come up to me and say, I got this email, what do I need to do? Uh, nothing. You don't need to do anything unless you see that the information was wrong. 
uh, which, you know, Aaron informed me that his name was misspelled, which Aaron, I didn't put it in there. I just didn't care enough to change it when I saw it the second time. So I apologize for that. Uh, I will be more thoughtful in the future. Uh, but if, you, if the information that you saw there was wrong, please let me know and we can correct that and, and make sure that is, that's good. Uh, so as, as I mentioned earlier here today, uh, we are in the, in the process of selecting some new elders. And as of today, you are welcome to nominate someone to the uh, selection committee that you believe would be a good elder here at our church. There, there, if you remember, though, there is one ground rule. You have to have spoken to that person about nominating them, okay? No, like, ninja nominations around here where they didn't know it was happening and, like, Okay, so you have to have spoken to the person ahead of time. Uh, but we have the next two weeks to do that. So if there's someone, uh, someone that you've been thinking about, if you've been praying about this and, and God has put someone on your heart, please go speak to that person. And then you can talk to someone on the team if, if they have agreed that they would like to serve. So last week we started uh, a discussion on the kind of men that we are looking for when we look for new elders. And there were a couple things that we noticed. Number one, uh, a godly leader knows that he is not the boss. Okay? They are someone who follows God, who acknowledges God uh, in his life, and therefore they know that they are not the ones who is in charge, that God is in charge. Number two, a godly leader is not looking for personal honor. Uh, They are looking to serve the church and to follow, again, follow God wherever God is leading. Number three, a godly leader serves people with, let's just say, with their whole hearts. Okay, we read this passage last week from Mark chapter 10, which I'm just going to read for you really quickly here this morning. But Mark, uh, Jesus is talking, he says, Not so with you, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this idea that uh, whoever we are asking to be an elder or leader at the church, we're really asking them if they will help us, will serve us, will help us get to that place that, that God wants us to go, will help our relationship with God grow stronger and deeper every day. And lastly, uh, a godly leader is not about perfection, but about progression. Uh, and so in particular, they, a godly leader understands that his life isn't, hasn't reached a destination of spiritual perfection. You know, becoming an elder, or becoming a minister for that matter, is not a matter of having your entire life together. Sometimes it's almost like I told you last week, it's, and it's not a matter of like electing or putting people into office who have hidden their troubles better than someone else, either. Uh, there's, there's something that has been going on uh, and, and we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, the kind of leadership that has been modeled for us in our country over the past several years. And as I was praying and thinking about uh, us this week, there is something uh, that comes out of these points that is so important that I think really distinguishes a godly leader from a leader that is not following God. And that is this, a real sense of humility and willingness to admit when he's wrong. Now, why is that so important to me? It's so important because currently in the world and the environment that we live in, 
We have leaders that refuse to admit when they're wrong. We have people that always have to be right and that argue their points further and further and further. But that is pretty much, that, that is very much the opposite of what a godly leader is. And if we think about some of those characteristics again, again, number one, a godly leader knows what? That they're not the boss, that God is in charge. Which means if you're going to do that, what do you have to recognize? I don't have all the answers. I don't always know what the right thing is to do. Instead, but instead of me trying to answer that question myself, I am going to rely on who? God, to give me the answers. That These are the kinds of people that we want. Humility and a willingness to admit that it's not about what I know or what I'm doing. It's about wh who God is and where he's leading us. Because here's the deal. When we look for leaders of a church, when we look for people to teach classes, we're not looking for perfect. Because the perfect person doesn't exist. And it's certainly not in this room. We all have flaws, right? We all have problems. We all have things that don't quite go to plan. Yeah? So we need to recognize that as, as we are looking for uh, men to lead us, that they recognize who God is, that they're not looking for personal honor, that they serve, and that they understand that their life and their relationship with God is not about reaching a certain point. It's about always becoming who God wants us to be, which sounds a little bit like one of our values, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like our grow value, that we are perpetually becoming who God wants us to be. But I had a really good conversation this last week, which reminds me, you know, some of you have been through this before. You've been at church for a long time. And someone came up to me and said, hey, I'm really, I, I enjoyed what you had to say today, but what is an elder? And I thought, well, that's a really great question, which perhaps I should answer that question uh, for us today. So what is an elder? Well, there are two passages that, that uh, tell us a little bit about what an elder is and what his role is in the church. So the first passage comes from Acts chapter 20. If you want to turn your Bibles uh, this morning, you're welcome to. They'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, our app is not up today, so uh, I, I know. It's just, it's just not working today, but uh, they'll be on the screen here. So from Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And here's what he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then from 1 Peter chapter 5, this is the passage we read earlier this morning. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing." as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Okay, so we have this term, right, which is elder. And if we are just going to define the term elder, apart from anything we've seen so far, how would you define the term elder? In order to be an elder, you must be... You must be old! Now, I have to tell you something. Um, I used to think older is older than it currently is, uh, but now, now I have a different sense for what old is. 
Um, but yes, obviously the, the, the first one is that a, a elder is an older Christian who has had some experience in life and both being a Christian, okay? Uh, and, but there's, there's two other terms here. The second term that is used is the term shepherd. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that this morning when Jesus was referring to himself as the good shepherd. And this is a metaphor that is used uh, in these contexts, not just for a singular leader like you are a shepherd because Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, but more so as a group of people that are working together. Um, so a group of leaders. And, and so this t- but this tells us something when, when Jesus is talking about elders and when he's talking about elders being a shepherd, in order to be a shepherd, this is Bryce's no-duh point of the day, okay? In order to be a shepherd, you must have a, a flock. There must be people that are, that are your flock, that are going to follow you and that you're going to have responsibility over. And then third, and maybe this, the, the term that makes the most obvious sense when we think about the role is this term, which is overseer. And a good translation of this word would be guide, caretaker, or leader. Uh, and the sense of this word is not one who basically holds power over someone else, but it's someone who um, oversees, and, and this is important, and, and takes care of the needs of the sheep. For example, if a shepherd had a whole bunch of sheep in front of him, and he stood up on the highest rock and said, Sheep! I am your shepherd. Bah, before me. That was bad. That was bad. I, it just happened, though, and it came out of my mouth before, like, before I could think about it. Like, I know. I know. I know. I'll come forward at the end. Um, <clears throat> um, we, we recognize that that's not really... That's not really the role of the shepherd, right? The shepherd is the role of the shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are protected, to take the sheep from when all the grass is gone in that area. What does the shepherd need to do? Take them to the place where there's more grass, right? There needs to take them to water. Okay, needs to do all of these different things. And so uh, the overseer is not just someone who looks over, but is someone who uh, that idea is very much like with the shepherd, that taking care of the needs of the sheep. Which takes us back to something we said last week and I want to reiterate today. Um, the kinds of people we want to nominate to be leaders for us, to be shepherds, to be overseers, to be elders, are the kind of people who are already doing these things. Okay? And, and again, here's what, here's what we mean by this. Um, someone doesn't start serving this church when they become an elder. They're already serving the church. And they're already loving people and taking care of people and helping people grow in their relationship with Christ. Okay? So that's the basic. But we're, we have, in the Bible, we have a list of things that we also need to take in mind and need to look for when we are looking for elders. Now, let me just ask you this question. When we see something in the Bible, okay, and we read it, and it comes in list form in terms of do these things or look for these things, how do we tend to interpret that piece of Scripture? It's like a checklist, right? It's like, well, this is what it should be, and this is what it should look like, and this is how it is. Unless, of course, there's something on the page that we don't like, and then we ignore it. 
But no, I mean, this is how we tend to, to look at some of these things. And uh, this is especially true uh, historically for churches when we look at this role of elders and uh, the servants of the church. So we do have some instructions from Paul, and we've called these, historically again, qualifications of elders. Now just putting that term qualifications on means that in order to be an elder, you must have these, you have to qualify. You have to have these things, okay? But here's the thing, Paul, when he writes down these things, never refers to them as qualifications. He never uh, refers to them as a checklist. He never refers to them as this is the model. So how are we to look at the things then? How are we to understand these passages? So let's take a look at them and see what they have to say about uh, elders, overseers, shepherds. And we're going to look first in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Okay, there's one. We're going to partner it with another one from the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Okay, now we have two lists. Do all of you have two fingers? Everyone have two fingers? Okay, good. Then you can stick your fingers in both of those places if you need to flip back and forth. All right, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So here's the first thing that I want to point out from these two lists, and that is this. They are written by the same person, but they are not exactly the same. Okay? They're written by the, the same person, but they are not exactly the same. There are actually differences both in what is listed and in how things are described. So a question that we might want to ask is, well, why are these two lists different? If Paul was attempting to create the go-to list for elders, then why would it be different in these two places? Because we want it to be the same, right? So that we can take it and then say, well, this is exactly what it is. Why is there variation? Well, that makes me think that maybe when Paul was talking about eldership, 
to these two different churches that maybe he wasn't trying to create a list. But if he wasn't trying to create a list, what was he trying to do? Okay? What's that? Meet the needs of the church. He, I, here's what I think he was trying to do. He was not trying to tell you, go look for this person. Instead, he's trying to paint a picture of the kind of person that you would want to lead a group of people that want to follow God. And can just anybody do it? No. And let's be honest, not just anybody wants to do it. Okay? Not just anybody wants to do it. So maybe they're not a list of qualifications, as we've called it, as much as they are sort of a description of the kind of person that Paul believes we should look for when we're looking for elders. Uh, and there's actually a history of that. Within a Greek literature at the time, this was something common to do, was to describe a kind or type of person. And if that's what Paul is doing, if he's describing a kind of person, then it explains at least in part why there are differences between what is written in the book of Titus and what is written in the book of 1 Timothy. Because um, those two places, those two uh, where Timothy lived and where Titus was, so Crete and Ephesus, those two cities were different places. They were different kinds of cities. They were in different areas. You know, one was more of a, of a city, one was more rural. And so, um, Paul, I think, could be telling us that being an elder is not like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Let me give you another example of this. I have worked in several different churches. So I've worked, uh, I grew up in one in Fresno. Uh, I went to church in Malibu. I worked at a church in Arlington, Virginia, which was just outside of Washington, D.C. I have worked here. I've worked at a church in the East Bay. And then I've worked here again. You remember that? I was here and then, yeah, I came back. Yeah, good story. We'll talk about it another time if you're unfamiliar with it. But... The point is that I want you to know is that the eldership in all of these churches were different. They were different. And the reason why they were different was because those areas, those towns, those places were different. When I worked in Arlene, Virginia, my very first job, I had uh, one elder was a doctor who ran the VA. One was a business professor at Georgetown. One was a lawyer for the Department of Justice whose wife worked for Texas Instruments and whose 9- and 10-year-old children listen to classical music on the regular. I mean, that, and here's the thing. This group of men fit this church because within this church, you had the top 5 to 10% from all different industries who were in the nation's capital to do these things. for. So it fit those people would have done a terrible job in Antioch. Because it's not the same group of people. So in Antioch, I had someone that worked for PG&E. I had a retired carpenter. Um, I had someone who sold cars. You know, so it's just different. It's just different. Um, but I will say this, even though there were differences, qualifications, as we've called them, but... Let's change that term. Um, looking for a kind of person is important. 
And as different as all of those leaders were, they had some pretty core and fundamental things in common. But we can't treat these passages as a list because it's not what they were meant to be. It's a description of the kind of people. And in particular, there are some things on this list before we jump into the real fun stuff. There are some things on this list that we need to recognize. Did you have to say this? Right? Like there are some things. Let's, let me just read it really quick for you again if you're there in First Timothy or in Titus. Let me just read it for you really quickly again. Um, listen to these things. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, I read those things, and this is what my brain does. I don't know what your brain does. But immediately, I start imagining an elder who is the opposite of these things. Any of you do that? Like, so I'm imagining in my head this um, drunk, violent, fighting, greedy elder. <laughs> right? Now, we can all recognize, let's just say it, right, that's not the kind of person we're, we're looking for, right? When you see these kinds of things. And, and yet it's fascinating, to me at least, that Paul felt like he did have to say these things in this character sketch. Now, when we look at these behavioral things, when we look at all that stuff that we just read, here's the question, and, and I've already answered it for you last week. So if you weren't here last week, you know, we prayed for you. So, but here's the thing. Why? I, I don't know what's wrong with me today. <laughs> I, I am like snarky to the nth degree. Like, I'm sorry. And uh, I can't promise I'm going to stop, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with me. Oi! Okay. Um, why, did, why did Paul feel like he had to say, don't, don't be these things. Why do you think? Good. Let's take it a step further. So Daphne said there must have been people in the church who were acting this way or doing those things. But we need to remember something. You know, we just came out of Ephesians, right? And so the Christians in Ephesus, what are they learning how to do? They're learning how to be Christians. They're learning how to live like Jesus in a place where people do not live like Jesus. And they're surrounded all the time by people who, let's say, are like that, who are doing these kinds of things. And so what is it that Paul is trying to point out to them? He's trying to say that an elder of your church will look markedly different than any leader outside of the church. Why? Because they're following Jesus. Thank you, Virgil. Because they're following Jesus. And because they're following Jesus, their life is not going to be the life of an Ephesian or someone who lives in Crete. Their life will be the life of someone who follows Jesus that happens to live in Ephesus or lives in Crete. You with me? Okay, good. There is an important area that each of these, um, these descriptions talk about, though, and that is the family. So, does the family matter 
in someone being a good leader. Paul believes so. Yes, that the family matters in someone being a good leader. So, again, I'm sorry for the repetition, but again, verses 2 through 5 of 1 Timothy. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And then from Titus, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Okay, so why does... Nisha's smiling at me right now in this really weird way. (laughs) She's not thinking of anyone in particular. Um, (laughs) So why the emphasis on family? It's a good question that, that I want us to explore a little bit. Why the emphasis on family? Why does Paul like draw this out? Why doesn't he say if you can run your business successfully and your employees like you? you know, why doesn't he say uh, if you're a part of this you know, uh, social club and everybody thinks you're great and you're a leader there? Why does he point out family? One, this is good because the church is a family, right? And, we are to, and, and we've already said, what do elders and, and, and shepherds and overseers need to do? They need to care for the people that are in the church, not just stand over them and say, you should do this or you should do that. They need to care for the people in the church. And so Paul recognizes that the family is an important ground on which you can tell if someone has what it takes or is starting to have what it takes or, or can be considered for these roles. And he even says it flat out in the Timothy passage. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Okay? So, if someone uh, is not able to maintain healthy relationships at home, do we want this person responsible for relationships here? No, we don't. Okay, but let's, we need to, we need to get into this because this, this is some deeper water than we've made it in the past. Okay, uh, so where does this start? So the first one is, uh, in, and it's mentioned in both passages, that the elder must be faithful to his wife. Um, other translations uh, say a husband of but one wife or uh, committed to his wife. And literally in Greek, the phrase means a one woman man. Okay, so what does this mean? And we've applied, the church has applied this concept in lots of different ways. I shared with you um, last week about someone who served at a church that I was in before, and he was married for 60, 65 years, and his wife passed away. And he came to me, like, after the funeral and said, I have to resign because I, I am no longer... I don't have a wife anymore, and so therefore I can't serve. And, you know, as much as I love where his heart was, that he was wanting to follow what he believed God was saying, it also broke at the same time. That we have adopted these ideas sometimes so strictly that God wouldn't even allow you to grieve and would remove you from leadership after 65 years of marriage. Like, How does that make sense? 
So that tells us a little bit that what we're seeing here and, and what we're exploring is a deep concept and not a shallow one. You understand me? That it's not one that we can just sort of skip across the surface and no, there's something more going on here. I told him he couldn't resign. Unless he really felt like that was what God wanted him to do. And it turns out he really just kind of needed a break is what he needed and understandably so uh, given that, given those circumstances. So then what, what's going on here? So the passage... I think in a pretty obvious way, addresses moral purity. So an elder can't be someone who has a wife and is chasing after other women. Um, he's committed to his wife, but it's not just about, I think, what, the, what he's not doing. Oh, I like you because you're not trying to sleep around. Good job. No, there's more than that, right? Um, This idea is that there are positive implications that a committed, faithful, one-woman man, a man who loves his wife, a man whose life loves him, what does that say? What does it show? Shows commitment, that they know how to be committed. Uh, Just raise your hand uh, if your marriage has been super easy. Anyone? 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 No? Well, why is that? Because marriage is hard, right? And are times good? Yes. Are times challenging? Yes. And if someone has a long-lasting, loving relationship with someone, they are showing that they, they've stuck with it. Through our times, they are showing that they... Um, work things out with another person. They're showing a lot of things that are admirable and things that we want uh, in a leader. And a healthy marriage, a healthy marriage shows that the elder knows how to deeply love someone else. That they know how to how to have that kind of relationship. And if we expect someone to deeply love Christ and deeply love the church and deeply love those who are part of the church and help those people deepen their relationship with Christ, then it's helpful to know that they can deeply love. Yes? yes. So how do we know when people don't come out and say, you know, she's still my wife, or she's just saying, often times we really don't know what people's kinds of lives are like. So Kelly's question is a good one. And um, the question is, how can we know? Especially this... I talked about this about a month ago, so I'm not going to get back on this horse. But um, this is the old Bryce thinking face, by the way. Um, Those groups are bad. That's not what I mean. I just mean you guys know each other on a pretty real level. And I want to compliment you for that. Because we, at least in the almost four years I've been here now, like we don't tend to run from difficult conversations or difficult situations. We don't tend to gloss over a whole lot. Do we still gloss over some things? Yes. Are some things still hard for us to deal with? Yes. Are we learning how to continually become 
more open, and more importantly, to be a trustworthy group. Because if you want to know how to allow people to share what's really going on, then we have to be a loving and trustworthy group. And if we're not, then people won't share. Because it's not safe. And if it's not safe, then people won't open up. I don't feel like we are that kind of place. Um, so, in trying to process your question in real time, that's my first thought about it. But I have a, I have a couple of other thoughts, and that is this. One, what was the very first point I said an elder needs to do? They know what? that they are not in charge, but God is. And if, you know what, that's true for all of us as well. And if someone's name is put forward to be an elder, I'm not trusting in them, I'm trusting in God. And if I mix that up, that's my mistake. That's my mistake. If I start trusting Don Roberts more than I'm trusting God, that's a mistake. If you're trusting me more than you trust God, that's a huge mistake. (laughs) Back it up, (laughs) all right? Just back that train up. You don't need that, okay? But to the point, Kelly, you know, what what have we been asking you to do? Pray. Ask for God's guidance. Ask for God to show you someone who is going to be good. And, And so... If we are listening to God and paying attention to God, I think God will will show us those things. And and so that's a tough question. That's a tough question. But I I want to I want to emphasize though. I feel like I've been around people enough to be able to tell at least moderately the difference between people who really love each other and people who tolerate each other and people who do not like each other. And that's, and, and I'll just, you know, I have sat in rooms with people and told them, I'm not going to lie to you about where you are in your marriage. And I never have. Never have. So, Paul is encouraging us to find people who are demonstrating a loving relationship. And here's where we got to keep, we have to keep this as a core principle instead of making it like a list. Okay? And so this is going to spill over into the next section. And um, I wasn't sure how far I was going to try to go with this today, but I want to go ahead and get into this next part um, because I think it's going to help us flesh some of this out. Because the next thing that Paul talks about is, is the kids, the children. Okay? Now, talk about a dangerous ground. <laughs> talk about a dangerous ground for just, you know, it is fraught with peril. Uh, and if, if you want to go up to a mom or dad and say something unflattering about their children, you may find a violent potential elder. <laughs> like that, that may happen. That could, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely possible. Um, but again, something we need to focus on is what, what is sort of at the core and the basis of these things. 
Um, and this idea about kids, again, has been applied a lot of different ways depending upon how we're looking at these passages. Um, so we have applied it to say, if you don't have children, you can't be an elder. Some have made the word plural, so that if you only have one child, you're not able to be an elder. Um, and then others have applied it to behavior to where if someone's child left the church, that they could no longer be an elder. Now, I, to stay on that side of the fence for a second, I can understand how someone can read some of this and say, well, but look, but look at this, and look at that, or look at that. Um, my first question is, well, have you had children? Uh, because I think when you've had kids, right, you might look at these things a little bit differently than if you have never had kids and you're looking through this thing and saying, well, you have to do this and you have to do that. And um, here's the problem with saying that someone has to have children in order to be an elder, okay? Um, that automatically excludes couples that have gone through infertility, Um and says that they are not qualified to be a leader in the church of God, which I, I struggle with that application, just to be completely straight with you. I struggle with that application because I think that's hard. And I, I'll just share with you, I think there are a lot of ways to be a spiritual parent to people, even if you don't have kids. And so I, I want to throw that out there. Um, and I've learned a lot from being a parent, and I know what a difference that's made in my life, but saying that someone has to have kids has always seemed really superficial to me and has ignored the actual spiritual life of the person we're talking about. And if I were just to, outside the discussion for eldership, if I were just to walk up to you and say, do you think someone who has kids is a better Christian than someone who doesn't? How would you answer that question? Right? It's kind of a, some of you might say yes, but I, put into that context, it's a little, well, but Bryce, I mean, but if they're not going, to, I get it, like leadership and shepherding and all those things. My point is, I want us to be careful. That's really my point, is that I want us to be careful. Now, first of all, the word that is used there, children, can be understood as either singular, singular or plural. Uh, it's the same, same in English, by the way. Um, so I don't think that Paul is making the point that you have to have more than one child or that more children increases your spirituality. Um, we stopped at two, and I am comfortable with where my parental spirituality is at two. <laughs> I, think, I think five would be, would be a mistake. Um, <laughs> but here, here is the question. Here is the question that comes, okay? What... what if this person is going to be a spiritual leader, what is the family like? What are his children like? And there are two main things that are listed here. Um, the Timothy passage kind of focuses more on how the children should be managed, while the Titus passage adds to the mix a man whose children believe. So first, what is the question that we think Paul, or what is, what is he wanting us to ask? Okay, this person we're considering for leadership, is their marriage, as far as we can tell, healthy and loving and strong? Good. What are their kids like? All right. Now, here's what question are we trying to answer 
when we say, what are their kids like? Here's the question we are not trying to answer. Do they have perfect children? Okay, we are not trying to answer that question. All right? Now, the answer to this question is really complicated, um, which is why I say we need to be careful with it. God gave us a gift when he created us. That gift is free will, meaning that we have the ability to choose whether we are going to follow God or not. Now, if we were going to judge God based on the criteria that we see in Timothy and Titus about children believing, could God be an elder in our church? No. Why? <laughs> because God gave us free will, and in giving us free will, what did God what did God desire? He desired for us to freely choose him. What did he know could happen that we would not? And have people not chosen God over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? So there's something we need to recognize. Just because someone's children doesn't believe in God or doesn't have a relationship with God, we need to be careful in deciding how much that applies to who they are as a person, as a parent, as a father, as a follower of Jesus. Because we all know in this room, your desire and love and grace for someone still may not convince them to follow Jesus. And if God can't at times convince us, it's an unfair expectation to say all of your kids have to or you can't serve the church. Okay then, so what are we looking for? Why is it there? If that's not going to be a thing, and, and what if their kids are a little crazy? Right? What if they are a little wild? Like what, if, what, is this, what does this look like and what do we do? What are we looking for? What are we looking for? What kind of parent are they? Have, and, and this is a question I think that we can explore with people a little bit. Has this person created an environment in which their kids can grow up and love God? Have they, have they given their kids everything they possibly could to show them the love of Jesus, to show them how important God is, to show them why the Christian life is different or why you should live this way. I mean, have they provided that kind of space for their kids? So we have to be careful, right? Because we're not looking for success. Check, right? What are we looking for? What are we looking for? Does this person have know God and love God? Do their relationships reflect the fact that they know God and love God? Have they lived their life in a way where those around them are encouraged to know God and love God? Are they doing their best to love people like God loves them? Are they, are they this kind of person? Are they this kind of person? Well, Bryce, tell us, do they have to have kids or not? Do they, well... Let's not get fixated on those things because the kind of person that is described here in both of these letters is a kind of person that I believe if we take the time to get to know and to look around and be guided by God that we can recognize. Does that make sense? And I think we were given these things 
not necessarily, and this is how, you know, legalistically we apply it. We take these things and we think, well, we're giving them so we can exclude people. No, 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 no. We are given them so that we can recognize a godly leader in people. And furthermore, we're given these things so that those who are growing in their faith and their relationship with God can have something to aspire to and can see these are good qualities that I want to have for as a husband, as a father, as a leader, as someone who's following God. Amen? So, um, I hope that God has, I know for many of you, like, you have you've spoken to me and you've said, well, what what do you think if this person like? I hope that God has been telling you, or showing you who would be good. But I want to remind you of something, just as we sort of come to a close here. We have these things that we're looking at, and we have these qualifications. Next week we're going to close it up with just talking about uh, a few more things. But I want to remind you that. Just because we're going through this process and just because someone is willing to go through it, it does not give you the right to treat them with disrespect or a lack of love. Um, again, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And there's something that I'm reminded of, and, and it's something that I do actually love about us in the discussion that we have. You know, when we go through times of growth and stretching, it gives us an opportunity to love each other in the way that, that God wants us to. It gives us a chance to affirm in people. It gives us a chance to look for ways that we can grow and be changed and be challenged by what God is calling us to. And that's what we want for this community. We want to grow and change and keep becoming what God is calling us to. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are all in this together, that we are all here to love and encourage one another in Jesus Christ, and that we want to build others up so that they can serve us and help us get where God is taking us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you have given to us. We thank you for the kind of person that you describe uh, here in these words. Um, God, we do want leaders who love their wives, who love their children, who have provided a place where their kids can learn about you and experience the love of Jesus and know the great life that you have envisioned for them. Father, we do pray for wisdom and guidance as we bring different men forward. Uh, help us to know, God, uh, how to love them and what to do. And, and, and God, give us wisdom and help as we move forward into what you're calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs uh, for prayer or encouragement this morning, you want to know God who loves you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.